Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. This is the place where you will hear the stories that are not covered elsewhere with the depth, clarity, and adherence to the principles that make us American. Adherence to the concept of free speech. Oh, imagine that. Free speech, liberty, democracy. And what is at stake here, not only in the war, in the ongoing Cold War, warm war, and sometimes hot war against radical Islamists and jihadists and political Islam, but also how it intersects with the wokists and the far left in that red-green axis. And on the and on this podcast, we will address these things front and center. And this week is no different. I want to talk to you about the latest book on this subject uh, by my, by our good friend Astra Nomani called The Woke Army. And she talks in unheard.com about the acceptable face of radical Islam. We'll also talk about a teacher that had the courage to sue back and sue the school district for a care-driven, Council on American-Islamic relations-driven defamation campaign against her. And it's a great story for why everyone, every one of you should stand up against the Islamist. And last, what on earth is happening in Scotland? We will hear about the possible ascension of an Islamist to the highest office in Scotland. So first, a book a long time coming, as I've been talking to Ezra about this for some time in her hard work with Woke Army, the Red Green Alliance that is destroying America's freedom. And, you know, she's actually not only been one of our co-founders of the Muslim Reform Movement, but uh, you probably have seen Ezra on the front lines of the parental rights debate across the country, as in Northern Virginia, Thomas Jefferson School and others have been sort of on the front lines of the attack against against scholarship, against merit, and for DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all these other um, insidious, infiltrative ideas that are really not about equality, but more about a power grab and an attempt to, to try to um, prevent a meritocracy, prevent true competitive atmospheres in in education and also block parental rights. And she's been on the front line of that uh, with demonstrations and and multiple interviews on Fox and elsewhere about parental rights and the battle that we're fighting across high schools and educational system across the country, universities on down. In her article this week from unheard.com, she talks about her new book, and it is about the acceptable face of radical Islam. She's a former Wall Street Journal reporter, senior fellow in the practice of journalism at Independent Women's Network. And I think the example that she pulls out that uh, she spends quite a bit of time in her book talking about is LoonWatch.com. And you may have seen this. They claim to be the 
internet's number one most trafficked site on Islamophobia. That was until 2018 when they stopped posting. And oh, by the way, that was the year in which Esra filed her defamation lawsuit against them, in which a website which is full of pseudonyms, no real names, fake names, Loonwatch was registered at GoDaddy.com by Zuhair Thomas, a pseudonym of an individual that also with other pseudonyms with people who used fish species as last names, including Dinios, Darter, Garibaldi, Emperor, and others, to conceal their identities. As she lays out that their targets were so-called loons, anyone who spoke out against Islamic extremism or in favor of Muslim reform. And they talked about basically not only the anti-Islamists as being bigots and Islamophobes, but also conservatives, the entire Republican Party, anyone who is pro-Israel. It was clearly an Islamist front shop that was done under the guise of anonymous pseudonyms and actually was getting quite a bit of traction. When we launched our Muslim reform movement in December 4th, 2015. This site was just rife with attacks on Esra, with attacks on me, with attacks on our entire movement, as you can see laid out. And it also coincided with attacks on us by the Council on American Islamic Relations, and also with a blatant attack on our work by CARE Chicago, which had a piece titled on their website, written by their public relations folks that said why the Muslim community should stay away from, why the Muslim community should fear Zudi Jasser. Yeah, a practicing, rather orthodox Muslim was somebody they should be afraid of and should stay away from. And again, more slander and defamation. Ezra points out, and I point that out to you because you will see now, I'll let you know, who Ezra revealed was the founder and the people behind LoonWatch.com. For years, they targeted Ezra, she says, calling me an Islamophobe. I'm a Muslim, but I had the temerity to call out Muslim establishment leaders who won't acknowledge that Islamic extremism was lying at the heart of crimes such as those of the Boston Marathon bombers. I am far from alone in suffering harassment. Other Muslim reformers such as Syrian-American physician Zudi Jasser and Pakistani-Canadian writer Raheel Raza were also targeted. So too were ex-Muslims, including Somali-American author Ayan Hirsi Ali, an agnostic thinker such as comedian Bill Maher and scientist Richard Dawkins. Indeed, Loonwatch denounced conservatives, as well as the FBI, the U.S. military, the state of Israel, and more recently Hindus in the state of India, who was behind it? Nobody knew. The cowards hid behind pseudonyms and then reposted it on their supposed civil rights organizations' websites, but more like Muslim Brotherhood legacy group, front groups. And after a decade of research, she revealed that the architects of Loon Watch in her book Woke Army, they were none other than the officials of the Council on American Islamic Relations presenting itself as the face of American Islam and the nation's largest Muslim civil rights group, but it's anything but. Care is a front for extremist form of Islam. They wouldn't respond to her inquiries that she 
sent them repeatedly as a reporter in this book. You've heard their catechisms. Racism, not freedom, is America's bedrock. White people are oppressors and black people are oppressed. Meritocracy is white supremacy. And as her trolls implied to her, it is unconscionable to link Islam to the ghouls who murder in the name of Allah. Opinions straying from these principles cannot be tolerated. And she goes on to lay out her history with them in her piece. Loon Watch was a watering hole for those extremists, presented as an opportunity to unmask some of the individuals enabling this hate. And also it really unmasks their technique, how they, you know, um, will, much like terrorism, asymmetric warfare, crazy people that will bomb people in restaurants, etc., but then create enough chaos in which they then come as the supposedly civil-headed people to, to say that Islam's not the problem and it is America's fault because of foreign intervention, because of our warmongering, etc. So the victims of the terrorists are actually the perpetrators and the Islamists who drive the radicalization are actually the solution. That is why Loon Watch and exposing what's behind it is so important to the work that we do at our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, and also at our coalition, the Muslim Reform Movement. So, it goes on, and it was verified who purchased who purchased Loon Watch. Zuhair, as I said, was Mohammed Tosif Akbar, a staffer at Care Chicago's chapter who used the moniker Garibaldi to harass critics of the organization, and he was one of the purchasers of the website loonwatch.com. The bills for the account, and Ezra has the receipts, as they were provided to her as part of a discovery process in the defamation lawsuit that she filed was paid for by the credit card of Ahmed Rehab, who purchased it for Mohammed Akbar at Care Chicago. And Ahmed Rehab is the head of Care Chicago organization and ended up also as responsible for other attacks on Muslim reformers, but including the article I mentioned to you before, why American Muslims should fear and stay away from Sudi Jazzer. And it's clear that he was one of the primary sources behind Loon Watch. The GoDaddy account also bought other websites on which care critics were anonymously attacked, including IslamophobiaToday.com and IslamophobiaSucks.com. You'll see they're trying to normalize the word Islamophobia, as I've told you many times in this program, is a attempt to invoke blasphemy laws in America and in the West. The only response Esther received to her FOIA requests and her lawsuit was not from Akbar or Ahmed, or Ahmed Rehab or others, but an attorney, Lena Masri, and she said she represents persons affected by the subpoenas you have issued against GoDaddy and Twitter. Lena Masri, by the way, is the National Litigation and Civil Rights Director at CARE. So, goes full circle. It's clear that Muslim ideologues, as she points out, have allied themselves with leftist activists to exploit the freedoms of the West. Their aim, which they are pursuing relentlessly and often viciously, is to utterly discredit Muslim reformers in order to promote a system of beliefs 
that runs counter to democratic values. This is the left green, the, the red green axis that she talks about in Woke Army. They seem determined to eliminate as much discussion of Islamic extremism as possible, which, by the way, would begin to ebb the un- peel the onion because at the core are the regimes of Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Egypt, and others that might have military form of dictatorships, but at the end of the day are Islamist in their Sharia versions of their state, whether Wahhabi Islam of Saudi Arabia in which you're beheaded or your limbs are cut off if you say anything critical of the government which perceives itself to be Islam, to be God. Same thing in Iran as we see the people protesting. So these tools of care, of impact, the Muslim Public Affairs Council. These tools pretend to be all about freedom and democracy, but they are preventing an exposure of the root cause of radicalization. And they're working with the left to do that. The left who supposedly cares about freedom, but actually is all ethnocentrically possessed with an obsession about American politics and partisan politics and doesn't really care about the implications globally on practitioners of the faith of Islam, which are a quarter of the world's population. Establishment Muslims, as Ezra says, and their far-left sympathizers strike more openly now. Earlier this month on the floor of the Virginia Senate, and she brings it all full circle here, State Senator Ghazala Hashmi, a Muslim-American from India, hurled the white supremacist smear at another Indian-American woman of color, albeit a Hindu one. Her name is Suparna Dutta. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin appointed her to the Virginia Board of Education last year. And on January 31 this year, the Virginia Senate Privileges and Election Committee voted unanimously 14-0 to for her nomination. Every Democrat was on her side. But when the issue arose in the state Senate, A cohort of allegedly progressive Democrats derailed her appointment in a 22 to 18 vote straight down party lines. What had Duda, an advocate for meritocracy and education, done to deserve this? She had the gall to call out the educrats who were behind the illegal dismemberment of the merit-based admission process at Thomas Jefferson High School, replacing it with a race-based process that a federal judge ruled discriminates against Asian students. In other words, in the name of anti-racism, real racism is being practiced. With Duda, in 2020, Ezra got involved in the campaign to oppose this new progressive policy where her son was a pupil. At one point, a school board member promoted the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic narratives of care officials. And at another point, teachers were instructed not to call the 9-11 hijackers terrorists. And just as Duda, an American Indian woman of Hindu faith, was labeled a white supremacist, Esra was also labeled a bigot for protesting against these policies in September 2020. Virginia Education Secretary, Islamist Atif Karni, a Democrat, barred her from speaking at a town hall meeting because he was that he was hosting And he thought, and he claimed that she belonged to an extremist organization, which Carney called the Muslim Reform Movement. 
the coalition that we formed was, an, was being labeled by this Islamist Virginia Education Secretary, a hate group. Ezra goes on to express the details of how deeply enmeshed the Islamists and the far-left progressive extremists of the Democratic Party were, were linked together arm in arm in trying to derail her and trying to derail the parents' rights movement of Red for Ed VA. It's just an amazing, amazing accounting, and I'd ask you to read it at unheard.com and also in her book, Woke Army. The network, as she concludes, is dangerous. It purports to stand for the admirable principles of racial justice and equality, but it is distracting the public from illiberal Islamism by loudly and perpetually accusing the institutions, history, and people of the United States of blanket racism. Claiming to have the moral high ground, the woke army attacks anything and anybody that stands in its way. It's time to see the project for what it is, and thank you, Esper, for the work that you're doing. Follow her on Twitter, and hopefully I will soon have her for a conversation here. Now, recently, similar, similarly, CARE has been accused of hiding behind anonymous website to attack critics and it's called unethical as reported by Dexter Van Zyl and focus on Western Islamism and he goes on to talk about Ezra's new book but lays out I think a very important part of this picture which is the methods the means that these individuals used as he quotes Ezra that they use websites like loonwatch.com and fake names to wage character assassination against Muslim reformers and try to evade accountability. And that's included groups that are like the Middle East Forum, Daniel Pipes and others, and ourselves, Ezra Nomani and myself. Nomani told Focus on Western Islamism, disagree with others if you want, but to use big tech to wage an anonymous campaign is unethical. Anybody who opposes disinformation and character assassination should be outraged. CARE must not only publicly apologize to all, it tar- all its targets, but fire every employee who had knowledge of this insidious disinformation campaign. It's the height of hypocrisy for CARE to tout itself as a civil rights organization. And to bring it to what's at the Supreme Court right now, as they talk about Google and Twitter's liability, The Supreme Court debates whether big tech supports extremists overseas. We have a very disturbing reality in the United States, she said. Since 2009, the Council on American Islamic Relations has weaponized big tech to anonymously create, fund, and feed a disinformation campaign run by cowardly keyboard warriors in a diabolical network that she calls the woke army. And the importance of these supposedly uh, freeways of free speech and otherwise of the importance of their hijacking by by wokists and leftists and the red-green axis cannot be overstated. We've talked on this program years ago about the Facebook board that was based in Europe that had Islamists working on it that was 
preventing anti-Islamist narratives and and was preventing any type of free speech. I think nothing brings this message home more than not only Ezra's book, but a report out this week by the Wall Street Journal that the Energy Department concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is no longer as Twitter and Google and others, YouTube called it the source of conspiracy theories and wacky disinformation from Russia and elsewhere. The Biden Energy Department has concluded that the pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak. So now, did do we need to debate any more about why the Twitterverse, Facebookverse, Metaverse, whatever it is, needs to be a thoroughfare of free speech? Yes, there needs to be some guardrails against attacks of imminent violence and elsewhere. But at the end of the day, it's not a place to determine what's fact and what's not. That's up to the readers based on evidence. The New York Post reports further with the Wall Street Journal that the conclusion is reportedly based on a classified intelligence report provided to the White House and key members of Congress. Many will be exploring why the scientific evidence of the lab leak was so slow to emerge from intelligence agencies. However, for my part, the most alarming aspect was the censorship, as Jonathan Turley said in the piece this week, not the science. There will continue to be a debate over the origins of COVID-19, but now there will be a debate. For years, the media and government allied to treat anyone raising a lab theory as one of three possibilities. Conspiracy theorists, racists, or racist conspiracy theorists. It's horrific. Academics joined the chorus in marginalizing anyone raising the theory. One study cited the theory as an example of anti-Chinese racism and toxic white masculinity. As late as May 21, the New York Times Science and Health reporter Apoorva Mandavili was calling any mention of the lab theory as racist. She embodies as Turley said, the new advocacy journalism at the Times. Reporters who remained wedded to the dated view of objective journalism were purged from the ranks of the Times long ago, as Barry Weiss can attest. Manavilli and others made clear that reporters covering the theory were COVID's little bull Connors. She tweeted wistfully, someday we'll stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit it's racist. Roots, but alas, the day is not here yet, they said. And now look what the energy department is actually saying. One former New York Times science editor, Nicholas Wade, chastises former colleagues for ignoring the obvious evidence supporting a lab theory as well as Chinese efforts to arrest scientists and destroy evidence that could establish the origin. That's what we were, literally, that's exactly what we were saying at the time, weren't many of us on radio, television, wherever we could, that why would they be destroying evidence if the lab leak theory was so conspiratorial and fabricated? The Lancet op-ed stated, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. And that's one of the leading medical science journals on the planet. We're also supposed to forget about massive payments 
from the Chinese government to American universities and grants of some of these writers to both Chinese interests or even the specific Wuhan lab. When Senator Tom Cotton merely mentioned the possibility in 2020, he was set upon the usual flash media mob. The Post ridiculed him with repealing a debunked coronavirus conspiracy theory. In September 2020, Li Meng Yan, a virologist and former postdoctoral fellow at the University of Hong Kong, dared to repeat the theory in Fox News, stating, I can present solid scientific evidence. It is a man-made virus created in the lab. The left politifact slammed her and gave her a pants-on-fire rating. President Biden accused Trump of fanning racism in his criticism of the Chinese government over the pandemic. When Biden's later revived a investigation into the origins, he was denounced as sugarcoating Trump's racism. Wow. And to conclude, this is all the same topic, folks, isn't it? Suppression about hate, suppression about medical science, power grabbed by the left, by the Islamists, and a destruction of the foundations of this country, which are related to individuality, equality, and free speech. Turley ends by saying, the media guaranteed that we did not have a full debate over the origins of the virus and attacked those who had the temerity to state the obvious, that there was a plausible basis for suspecting the Wuhan lab. None of this has diminished demands for more censorship, even after Twitter admitted that it wrongly blocked the Post story before the 2020 election on Hunter Biden, Democratic senators responded by warning the company not to back, cut back on censorship and even demanded more censorship. And the Twitter files have revealed an extensive and secret FBI effort to censor citizens on social media. It included undisclosed efforts by members of Schiff's office to get Twitter to ban a columnist and target critics. The same figures in politics and media are just moving on to the next approved narrative, thinking we're all going to forget. By suppressing alternative scientific and policy views, the public was denied a full debate over mask efficacy, vaccine side effects, COVID origins, and other important issues. Many of those questions are still being recognized as legitimate and worthy of debate. Censorship does not, as Turley said, does not, as Biden claims, save lives. It is more likely to cost lives by protecting approved views from challenge. It does not foster the truth any more than it fosters free speech. Whatever the origin of COVID-19 may be in China, the origins of our censorship scandal is closer to home. And, you know, this is the reality. When we fought about the deep root cause of Islamist terrorism. We were called bigots because we wanted to talk about what was spoken in the mosques. And because I had the gall in, in congressional testimony to say that 80% of mosques in America had some type of, of fundamentalist interpretation and refused to separate mosque and state, and that in essence, politically, there were insurgencies, that was somehow hate speech. When in fact, it wasn't. It was about looking at the root cause, looking at why Islamism, a separatist movement, would naturally create a militant arm that was terrorist, would naturally create those who hated America and work with our greatest enemies. And that's a debate I wanted to have. 
I debated a number of imams across the country, and then they didn't want to debate anymore because they realized they were losing. And the same thing happened with COVID. Many across the country were trying to come to understand, do lockdowns work? Are these masks working? What, what is the right answer? But we couldn't have that debate. They were pushed underground. They were pushed away from the main bandwidth of society's debates. And now it's coming back in little footnotes here and there, drip, drip, drip intermittently so they can say, well, okay, yeah, we, we, we revealed what actually happened. But then we won't have any anywhere near the trillion-dollar swing in the wrong direction that we had that led to decisions that have devastated our country into a mire that's going to take us decades to get out of. Last, with this final story, I think it brings it back about the importance of understanding whether Islamists are Islamists or not, and who they are. And I'll remind you that while not all Muslims are Islamists, it's a plurality movement among the Muslim population, maybe 30% or so, huge political parties across the world that are driven by political movements. While not all Muslims are Islamists, all Islamists are Muslims. And at the end of the day, there are those who are Islamist adjacent, Islamist sympathizers, and elbow to elbow, locked in arms, the red-green axis that are facilitators. But it's important to know who they are since nobody really cares anymore to do vetting or in any way perceives publicly the narrative that Islamism is incompatible with Western ideals. We've heard certainly many speeches, for example, from French President Emmanuel Macron has repeatedly given speeches about the need for all French citizens to believe in laïcité, to believe in the French way of life and the separation of religion and state and the belief to repel separatists and that ideology from any sanctuary at home in their state. But it's going to take a lot more work than that as we see other state leaders in Europe not having the same courage and certainly not in America having any courage to address these things. Well, why am I raising this? In 2009, the now-defunct Quilliam Foundation published a warning that given the news of a man by the name of Hamza Yusuf's cousin, Osama Said, Hamza Yusuf, not the one in the U.S., but the one that was with a foundation, an Islamic foundation that was pretty prominent in the U.K., when he was standing as a SNP parliamentary candidate, Britain risked electing its first openly Islamist MP. And now, 14 years later, King Charles is about to appoint the UK's first Islamist head of government. Yes, you heard that right, folks, from the Focus on Western Islamism. Sam Westrop is talking about the troubling Islamist connections of Scotland's next leader. Hamza Yusuf, a senior Scottish National Party SNP politician who brought a fugitive Hamas commander to meet with Scottish ministers worked for a radical charity condemned by Western governments for its anti-Semitism and terror ties. And he advocated for progressive political Islam, quote-unquote. And now he is the front-runner to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as SNP leader and become Scotland's new first minister. Yes, look at his background. 
the head of Scotland, cheered for Iraqi attacks against British and American soldiers during the Iraq war, cheered on, on social media. In 2010, the Quilliam Foundation, a Muslim-run counter-extremism organization, prepared a list of British security officials warning that the SIF was an entry-level Islamist group. And the SIF, by the way, is his organization, which is the Scottish Islamic Foundation. Parliamentary questions reveal that Yusuf and Saeed, through Scottish Islamic Foundation funds brought extremists to meet with senior Scottish politicians. Organizing meetings with the Minister of Europe, External Affairs and Culture, and the evidence is in their report, just released this week. They had long served as leading members of the Muslim Brotherhood in both the UK and Iraq, and in 2006 praised Iraqi resistance against British and American troops in Iraq. And by the way, that was that was Ismail. I'm sorry, that was Mohammed Sawalha from Islam Expo, who met frequently with the Scottish Islamic Foundation that praised the Iraqi resistance against British and American troops. That was not Yusuf. But Yusuf's involvement with Scottish nationalism served the interests of the SIF and may have provided an avenue by which they obtained funding of the Scottish payers, of the Scottish taxpayers' money to the Islamist-run group. Yusuf's cousin, as Sam points out, and SIF colleague Osama Saeed, a notorious Islamist operative who also once stood as SNP parliamentary candidate. In 2005, he called for the establishment of an Islamic caliphate. And in 2006, Saeed voiced praise for Al-Qaeda operative Anwar Awlaki, writing, Imam Awlaki was originally hounded in the U.S. because two of the 9-11 bombers happened to pray at his mosque. He preached nothing but peace, and I pray he'll be able to do so again. Awlaki later became leader of the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula branch before his death in 2011 drone strike. Now, you may say that these are just folks that are close to Yusuf, but they don't share ideas. But they still remain close. Yeah, the extent to which Yusuf shares the ideas of these colleagues and family members that I mentioned is unclear, but he certainly did a lot of activism close in meetings and otherwise with them. And he never spoke out against Islamism. And this really points out what I've said to you many times on this program, which is since all Islamists are Muslim, and since Islamism is such a massive global movement with hundreds of millions of followers, it is imperative that not only are Muslims the only head of the spear possible to defeat political Islam, as we're trying to do in the Muslim reform movement, but it's part of the vetting process that they have a public track record against political Islam, that they be openly anti-Islamist and believe in the Western formulation of secular liberal democracy. Anything short of that should certainly make, make us feel suspect of their sympathies. In 2010, Yusuf's cousin Saeed left Scotland for Qatar to work for Al Jazeera, <laughs> the, the Muslim Brotherhood's font. 
During his time as an elected SNP official, Youssef has been an enthusiastic supporter of Al Jazeera and has also boasted of the deals with the Qatari regime. Repeatedly talking about bringing Qatar to Scotland and the, the, the Scottish arrangements. When the Muslim Brotherhood was set to take over Egypt, Yusuf tweeted, all this talk coming from the U.S. and the U.K. about an Islamist government taking control is smoke screens and mirrors to protect their own interests. <laughs> he never did criticize Islamism there, did he? Yes, we were in favor of the revolution, as we should be against ruthless dictators like Mubarak. However, you also be, have to equate them with the Islamists. And he did not do that. Sam lays out a lot of the convenient progressivist and far-left opinions that Yusuf has made in order to make himself more palatable to the left in Scotland. And even on the face of it, as he says, the progressivist ideas that Yusuf's recent statements and behavior do not indicate absolute evidence of continued Islamist leanings. And he's even expressed some encouraging condemnations of radicalism, such as his denunciations of Islamist clerics, who have praised Pakistani violent extremists. And he's further urged mosques not to give platform to their supporters in the West, which, I'm sorry, without a ideological condemnation of Islamism, I find Islamism I find to be just convenient. And as Sam points out, it's possible, however, that Yusuf might be a believer in a genuine confluence of Islamism and progressivism. In 2012, he declared his support for progressive political Islam. In the same Twitter thread, he praised the main Islamic party in Tunisia as an example. And as Sam calls out, and I would ask for a complete public vetting, that the media begin to ask repeatedly, what is Yusuf's position on Islamism, on political Islam, and whether it leads to radicalization inherently defined by its supremacist ideology. So important. So, we've learned today about the woke army. We've learned today about the need for free speech when we're countering everything from pandemics to radical Islamists, and the need to expose them, whether they're hiding behind websites like Loonwatch or hiding in so-called Islamic organizations and making their way through the political machinery in Scotland, only to be appointed soon by the new King of England, who has been, I think, very disappointingly Islamist-adjacent for some time as he gave bizarre lip service to kings, to Islamic governments, and otherwise turning a blind eye to the evils and harms of the Sharia state, the clerics and others uh, in the name of interfaith cooperation with these Wahhabis and otherwise. But we'll see. If Hamza Yusuf is selected to be the head of state for Scotland by the king, then it'll be an interesting ride as we point out and expose what the reality is of his positions and how much fealty he has to Islamist movements across the planet. Thank you for joining me this week. 
It's always great talking to you. Thank you for giving me the time to address the topics that I think need more coverage, more deep dive on media day to day. This is your faithful correspondence at Blaze TV Podcasts. And join me again in a couple weeks. God bless. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.